Hey friends, this is Linda, and you're listening to Calling Water. If you're joining us for the first time, what we do is we look at a passage of scripture and ask ourselves two questions. What does it mean and what does it call us to do? In today's episode, For the Lord and for Gideon, we're looking at Judges chapter 7 and how God followed through on his promises to the people of Israel, regardless of their imperfections, fears, and doubts. Are you ready? Let's begin. So Judges chapter 7 is about, spoiler alert, Gideon's victory against the Midianites, equipped with sparse resources and manpower. But before we dive into the events of today's text, let's take a brief detour and explore Gideon's origin story for just a little bit. We first meet Gideon in Judges chapter 6 when an angel of the Lord appears to him and calls him Mighty Warrior. But if you read on in that chapter, we discover that Gideon is anything but a mighty warrior. The scripture tells us that the Midianites, Amalekites, and other groups would routinely raid Israelite lands and ravage it, taking or destroying all their crops and livestock. So Gideon is found in the beginning of the story, threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from their ruthless invaders, which is not ideal for threshing wheat, I would think, based on my limited understanding of how that works, because this process would be most effective on a high place so that the wind can carry away the chaff as they throw the wheat into the air, leaving the useful parts of the wheat intact. So hiding in a wine press, not really the actions of a quote-unquote mighty warrior. And not only was he threshing wheat in hiding, but he is so unsure of his calling that he questions and even tests God multiple times. The first question he asks is essentially, if it is really you, God, then why are all these bad things happening to us? Then he asks, and if it is really you, God, like why would you call me? I'm the least in my clan, and my clan is the least in the land. It sounds like a Dr. Seuss poem. Then Gideon notoriously asks for signs to confirm this calling before stepping into his role as the mighty warrior the angel called him out to be. And he does indeed turn out to be so, but not because he had anything to do with it. Everything about his defeat of the Midianites establishes that if Gideon was mighty, it was only because of the might of God. So how does it happen? Gideon somehow assembles 32,000 men to fight, which in context was not a big number. Judges chapter 7 verse 12 tells us that the enemy forces were so numerous that they were as thick as locusts, their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Even so, 32,000 seemed like a good baseline, except God tells Gideon that it's too many. In Judges chapter 7, verse 3, God instructs Gideon, Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. And just like that, 22,000 men deserted. Can you imagine how disheartening that must have been for Gideon? We already know that he was not fully convinced that he was the right person for the job, and he had doubts about the job itself. He probably had to rally vigorously to recruit the men that he did, but now he has to stand by and watch two-thirds of the troops leave? 
that had to have been rough. But God seems to be telling Gideon, what good is an army of 32,000 men if two-thirds of them are super afraid? Nah, it's far better to have 10,000 resolute, courageous men. Okay, so 10,000, I can work with that. Except, God says, that is still too many. So he has Gideon do another test this time involving the manner in which they drink water. And a distinction is made between those who lapped the water like dogs and those who knelt down to drink. And only 300, 300 out of 10,000 passed this particular test. In Judges chapter 7, verse 7, God tells Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Now, this is where the interpretation gets a little tricky. The more common view of this text, like the NIV translation, says that the ones who lapped the water were the ones who cupped their hands to bring the water to their mouths. So it seems God wanted Gideon to keep the people who were constantly alert and not losing themselves to thirst. But in other translations, like the NRSV, for example, says that the lappers lap the water like dogs with tongues in the water, while the ones who kneeled were the ones who put their hands to their mouth. So in this version, it's as though God wants people who are perhaps more foolish and would drink water like dogs, but will follow directions at all costs. So are these translations at odds with each other's? Which one is right? Well, I can't say, but I'm not sure it matters because the point of this winnowing is not about selecting fighters with a desired quality. God wasn't building an elite strike force here. If you know anything about how Gideon wins the battle, which we'll cover in just a second, there's absolutely no special skill required here. The only desired outcome was that the number go down from 10,000 to 300. I mean, God says this explicitly earlier in verse 2. The troops with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Israel would only take the credit away from me saying, my own hand has delivered me. So it's very possible that this test was just an arbitrary one simply to reduce the numbers. So how exactly did they win with the 300 men remaining? Even with all the assurances from God, Gideon was, for good reason, still petrified at the prospect of attacking this overwhelmingly large enemy. The Lord tells Gideon to go down to the camp at night to eavesdrop on what the Midianites were saying amongst themselves. When he does, he overhears them telling each other, dreams they had in which they were soundly defeated by Gideon and his army. And this is when Gideon abandons all doubt and charges forward with the plan. And what was the battle plan, you ask? He arms his men with trumpets, torches, and jars and had them surround the enemy camp. When Gideon gave the signal, they blew their trumpets, smashed their jars, and grasped their torches with a battle cry, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Now, defeating an army with men as innumerable as sands on a seashore 
would have been impossible with 300 men, no matter how valiant they were. But the sudden, simultaneous blaring of 300 trumpets and smashing of jars? That caused just the right amount of mayhem needed to get the Midianites to fight each other and give the Israelite army a distinct advantage. Now, there are two things I feel this story calls us to do. Firstly, we can give ourselves grace when we feel afraid or uncertain. Leaders aren't impervious to fear and doubt. They very much have substantial amounts of both. Gideon began this story as a coward of sorts, and it took a long time for him to come around. But see what God does in this story. He doesn't assuage Gideon's fears by backing him up with a formidable army, advanced weaponry, and supernatural circumstances. In fact, God does the exact opposite. I mean, it's almost funny. Gideon starts out incredibly unsure of his calling, and God responds by taking away the little confidence he might have had in his military. God gave Gideon a promise. You will defeat the Midianites. And all Gideon had to do was trust that promise, regardless of how the circumstances looked. And the circumstances objectively did not look good at all. Though we can do a lot of things when we believe in ourselves and have the right resources and are connected to the right people. But oftentimes, God wants us to lead in a way that we might not have ever imagined for ourselves. And I'm not talking about some crazy idea you made up on your own that you think is from God. I'm talking about things that you get repeated confirmations about from a variety of sources, that this is something God does want for you. Oftentimes, the circumstances aren't conducive to this calling at all. So which do you obey? 100% trust in God's promises. And you'll find that whatever it is that he promised to deliver, he will enable to do within the scope of your abilities, even if they're just trumpets, jars, and torches. Secondly, We can give ourselves some credit, even if it's just for doing what God told us to do. Now, I'm not sure what compelled Gideon to make his men cry for the Lord and for Gideon. Maybe it was customary for our soldiers to dedicate their battles to their commanders. I don't know. Or maybe since Gideon overheard the enemy mention him by name, he wanted to strike fear into their enemy by saying, yep, your dream about me defeating you guys is happening right now. Either way, somehow the text implies that the soldiers are fighting for God and for Gideon. Has anyone ever told you about something good that happened in their life recently? Maybe it's that they got a promotion at work. Maybe they found the love of their life. Maybe they overcame an illness. And then they say, it's all God. It's all by the grace of God. It's all his favor. And I won't refute that. Ultimately, yes, it's true. It is all God. But also own the work you did. Because most likely, you were not just sitting around when this great thing just fell into your lap. Don't tell me it's all by God's grace when I know that you've worked super hard to earn that promotion, or you've been on many failed dates before finding the one, or you took every medicine and you've been on every health regimen physicians recommended for you to get well. 
every so often, God will gift you with a complete miracle that had nothing to do with you at all. But more commonly, God empowers us to be our own actors. There's a difference between giving glory to God and saying glory to God. The latter is purely demonstrative and makes others who have not had much success as you had feel as though they are second-class kingdom citizens. Being humble and giving God the glory means you recognize that God is the giver of all good things, but also recognizing that God gave you agency to do the things you had to do in order to receive them. You attribute glory to God, not just by saying so, but with the posture in which you receive your blessings and how you share them with others. Some might say Gideon was being pompous by adding his name to this battle cry. And if you read on in the book of Judges, his later actions would definitely support that claim. But in this particular moment, he is fully accepting his role as the one who will lead his men to victory. He is claiming responsibility for the lives of his men, just as God had claimed he will deliver the Midianites into their hands. The story of Gideon shows us that we don't need to achieve a certain level of spirituality, maturity, or skill in order to be of service to God and to others. God uses us in our completely flawed humanness to show that it really is only by God's grace that we can make it. Trust in His promises regardless of how things appear on the outside and just be fully for the Lord as the Lord was fully for Gideon and in the same way is fully for you. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful and even relieved that there's no prerequisite when it comes to living for you. So many times we get it in our heads that in order to be a quote-unquote good Christian, we have to follow a specific protocol. But really, all you require of us is to trust in you. Even when we might have every worldly reason to doubt your word, We know that when you give a promise, you follow through, start to finish, and you equip us with all the tools we need, even if they seem measly or they're just our own wits sometimes. Thank you for loving us and using us in all of our imperfections, fears, and doubts. In Jesus' name, amen.